This is the Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The Word to Stand On for Life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. In case you're wondering, this is the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the word to stand on for life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585 if you're outside the local San Antonio area. You can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Again, we apologize for the technical delay. Maybe you can make it worthwhile with some really good questions. Two quick things before we get started. Tomorrow, Paula will be live in studio with us on the date day edition of the program. So, ladies, that is your program. And then tonight here at Calvary Chapel, uh, we're going to be, I'm going to be teaching uh, for me. And, and I know it's different for everybody. For me, this is the most personal and practical um, Bible study chapter in all of the Bible, Genesis 32. Uh, we're going to get Jacob wrestling with Jesus. And um, you'll have to tune in to com or come and watch in person to find out why it's so personal and how I use it. But I have been literally, no hyperbole here, um, using this chapter nearly every day of my almost 30 years with Jesus. So that's tonight here at 7 o'clock. Okay, let's get to some questions that have been sent in. This one is from Reuben. said, Pastor Ron, in light of our country's turn toward evil, how should believers respond to our new administration? You know, Reuben, one of the things that we have to do is remember that um, half of our nation thinks our country's turned toward evil today. The other half thinks that we've turned toward um, the, the best possible response. So I think what we've got to do, first of all, is stop being arrogant and, and immediately assuming that anybody that disagrees with us uh, is, is evil. Uh, there are good people, some of them born-again Christians, uh, who voted for this administration. And Reuben, the Bible seems to indicate that the Lord gives us the kind of government we deserve. So in, in light of what's going on, uh, we need to protect ourselves. Here's what, how believers should respond. We need to walk with Jesus. We need to respect this administration. We need to refrain from saying any bad things about them. Uh, we need to pray for them. Most importantly, we need to pray for them. Every one of those people need Jesus. 
and they don't have him. So we need to be men and women of prayer. And unless they ask us to violate what the very word of God says, and and I'm talking individuals, this is our response individuals, then we're to obey our rulers so that there would be peace, so that the chaos would be diminished, so that we could live fruitful lives serving the Lord. Now, there's a lot of talk, Reuben, about where this administration can take our country. And, And again, I think everybody on this program knows I am very conservative. Um, I think that God has constructed a time, and when I say this, I want to be very careful, this isn't um, um, God choosing this administration. But I think right now, if we really believe Romans 8.28, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, we have to recognize, Reuben, that right now we have the greatest opportunity, at least in my 30 years with the Lord, to share the gospel of Christ and find solid ground that that the seed that we're sowing, the word of God that we're sharing, is going to fall on fertile soil. There is so much turmoil. There is so much fear. When you combine that with the pandemic, you combine it with the constant barrage of, of, of fear and panic that we're getting virtually 24 hours a day. Um... Our audience is a bunch of frightened people, and Jesus is the answer. We can tell them over and over how many times Jesus said, don't worry, or don't be afraid. And I think too often, Reuben, in our sort of Western mindset, we think, well, we got to protest, and we got to stand for what's ours. All we got to do is share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the Spirit of God do what he's going to do. And then when we see the Lord, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. If I could be boss just for one thing relative to this kind of question, Reuben, and everybody have to listen to me, I would say I do not want to hear Christians embarrassing themselves any longer with the kind of nonsense that we hear on the media and social media platforms. Too many of us as Christians have behaved as though Donald Trump was our Savior instead of Jesus Christ. Too many of us, when the election results came in and all the way up through this very moment, too many of us have behaved like Jesus has suddenly lost all of his power and authority. He's in control. We need to do what he tells us to do individually. And let Jesus worry about taking stands for righteousness. Our country's lost. And we need to get people saved. So, Reuben, I hope that answers your question. Natalie says, Pastor Ron, what advice should I give someone who is genuinely struggling with gender dysphoria? Natalie, I love the way you put that question. Uh, There are people, primarily young people, uh, but there are a lot of young people who are struggling with gender dysphoria, that is, confusion over which gender they are. They see one thing in the mirror and they feel something else. Now, I think to be absolutely candid, we gotta, we got to tell people they're wrong, that the confusion is easily resolved. But we have to do that with compassion. We have to do that with understanding. And when they're constantly being bombarded by by uh, social media, when they're constantly being barred in schools, 
that this behavior is good, and then when they are alone or, or, or crying out for attention, this is the way they're going to get it. And the enemy is going to jump on this, and he's going to try to destroy them. And so here's the advice that we give somebody. The answers to your questions, the, the, the solution to your confusion is simple. You need Jesus in your life. Don't talk to somebody about what a sin it is to be um, um, confused about your gender. Recognize they're really hurting. At the same time, the only solution is Jesus Christ. Your arguments, your opinions aren't going to help them. So what you tell them is you need Jesus. When, when they're willing to open their heart to him, he will straighten out all the confusion. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, will come and live inside them. And then he will direct their steps. So we, we've got to really get to the root of the problem. The problem is not gender confusion. As I said a moment ago, that's so easily resolved. Look in the mirror, see which body parts you were given at birth. That's what gender you are. But you see, even that makes no sense to somebody who doesn't know Jesus. You know, I was looking yesterday at the news, and I only am looking casually. I'm, I'm at this point only looking at headlines. And yesterday, there was a story about the first openly transgender, a man who thinks he is a woman, who's been appointed to the cabinet, a cabinet position, I think Secretary of Health, and we're so proud. Natalie, these people need Jesus. That's the only thing that's going to rescue them. So that's the advice. Give them the gospel. Tell them Jesus understands their confusion. Jesus alone has the answer that will make sense of everything. Tell them that they're sinners, not because they're confused but they're sinners because they sin. And Jesus has provided them the opportunity for a new life. That's our responsibility, Natalie. Again, thank you for the way you worded your question. Nolan says, what is the best thing about being a pastor who has been in the same church for a long time? Um, Nolan, for me, that's the easiest question ever. Um, uh, the best thing is the people. Um, I've been the pastor of this church for 25 years. In May, it'll be 26. Um, I've watched children that I've dedicated as babies. Um, many go through our school. Many be here their entire life. Um, I've watched them get married, done their weddings, dedicated some of their children. And you see, I get to see the work of the Holy Spirit over a long period of time in their lives. Paul and I were talking not too long ago about how difficult it is for pastors. And there are a lot of pastors who, in denominations, get moved around a lot. You know, two, three years seems to be the longest that they serve in any one place. And uh, we were thinking, oh, how, that would be the most difficult thing ever because all you're always putting up with is the problems. 
You don't get to see the work of the Holy Spirit. And I've been able, Nolan, to watch so many of these young men and women grow up to have a genuinely thriving, fruitful relationship with Jesus Christ. And it just it's just sort of validation for everything that we've done, all the difficulty that we've been through. It's worth it when you see God working in these people's lives. And I absolutely love what I do. I'm honored to be able to do it here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio and to have been able to have the privilege of doing it for a long, long time. You know, Nolan, I, I never thought, because I was a late-in-life Christian, I didn't get saved till I was just a couple of months short of 40, uh, I never thought I'd be able to do anything for 25 years. I got saved, I wanted to serve the Lord, I knew I was called to be a pastor, but I, I just assumed that I was sort of building a foundation that somebody else would come in and take over. And I remember very specifically thinking, I would never, ever make 25 years. Well, now we've made 25 years, and, and we're looking forward to more time. And to see what God has done in these people's lives has been the single greatest blessing of all. So that's the very best thing for this pastor. Uh, other pastors might um, have different opinions, but for me, Nolan, that's the most important thing and the very best thing about being a pastor. There's lots of wonderful things about being a pastor. Uh, imagine that you know, Jesus has entrusted me um, uh, or entrusted these people to me and his word to me. Uh, so there's a lot of things I love about being a pastor, but the very best by far is the fact that I get to watch them grow and see the changes in their lives. Thank you for the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Nather. Nathan, rather. I'm sorry. I don't see well. Nathan says, It seems like God would make himself known if we are required to believe in order to get to heaven. Um, Nathan, I don't know how much more God could have done to make himself known. He left heaven and became a man. He walked this earth. The historicity of Jesus is beyond any dispute. Um, his death and then his resurrection, uh, the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. Um, what more would God do? I mean, if I look into the eastern sky, every morning the sun's going to come up, same place. Tonight at sunset, the sun will set in the west. Uh, every winter it's cold, every summer it's hot. Every spring it's nice, every fall it's starting to get cold. Um, it seems like God is making him known. The Bible declares the heavens declare the glory of God. But Jesus becoming a human to die for the sins of humans, how could he make it any more clear? You know, people say, well, if God did this miracle or if God would appear to me in my, my room or something, well, then I'd believe. No, they wouldn't because they'd rationalize it away. God became a man. This the theological term is called the kenosis of God. Jesus who though being equal with God, considered equality with God something not to be held on to, he humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, humbled himself even unto death, 
And then he didn't, didn't stay dead. Nathan, I don't know what more you want. I honestly don't know how he could prove who he is with any more certainty than that. You know, Nathan, one last thing. The Bible says that after the, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, the millennium, when, um, to a large degree, the, the curse on the earth is going to be reversed, Jesus will physically, in his glorified, resurrected body, be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem with perfect justice. We'll be ruling and reigning with him all over the globe. But the Bible says after the thousand years are over, the enemy is going to be let loose. Satan is going to be let loose. And his purpose is going to be to deceive the nations one more time, deceive people. And you would think after a thousand years, that's a long time, a thousand years of perfect justice, of righteousness, nobody guilty getting off and nobody innocent being convicted of anything, where poverty is not an issue, where health care is not an issue, where we don't have to listen to these political speeches. We think that after a thousand years of that, everybody would be convinced. But the Bible says that those who are deceived are going to be like the numbers of sand on the seashores. The problem's always been man, Nathan. So again, I don't know what more God could have done. Bruce says... Pastor, and what do you do with John six forty four? How do you explain it? Um, let me read it, Bruce, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Jesus is speaking. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, I assume what you're asking about is no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Well, the Father does that drawing. Um, by sending the, the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will testify of, of him. Um, we're walking around, enemies of God, hostile to God. And then one day the Holy Spirit comes alongside. I like to, the, the, he whispers, you know, psst, 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 whispers in our ear. And, and then suddenly we're, we're aware that something we're doing is wrong. And Jesus said he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And that's what he means in John 6, 44. So on our own, Paul writes, there's no one who seeks God, not even one. To the Romans, he writes, there's nothing good in our flesh, nothing at all good in our flesh. But it probably happened to you, Bruce. It happened to me when I suddenly became aware that I was a sinner. And then I became aware that all that I'd ever heard about Jesus that I just out of hand rejected suddenly created in me a hunger that I didn't know exist. And I knew that I needed to come to Jesus. And that's what he's talking about. On our own, there's no one who seeks God. I spoke about that verse a moment ago. And yet there's some times when we're seeking him. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. There's a theological term, and I don't know, Bruce, whether you're asking this question from a Reformed perspective or not, 
But um, there's a theological term called prevenient grace. And that's the grace of God, the personal Holy Spirit, making us aware that we're in trouble, making us aware that we're missing something. I often say, Bruce, that we're we're all created with sort of a Jesus-sized hole in our hearts. And when the Holy Spirit starts revealing to you that Jesus alone will fill that hole, well, then we resist for a while, maybe, but we, we finally get to that place where Jesus, I need you, and then everything begins to make sense. So, Bruce, that's all Jesus is speaking about then. On our own, we don't seek God. But when the Spirit comes along and draws us to him, then Jesus is made a way for us to get to the Father by dying for our sins. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Where are we? Two minutes? couple of minutes left in this half of the program. Hey, it's been quiet. I hope it's not because at the beginning we didn't have any, people didn't think we were on the air. But we'd love your calls, 340-9585. Uh, I've got two minutes now, so let me, here's a question I can do in two minutes. Gail wants to know, what role does fasting play in our prayer lives? Um, Gail, that depends on, on different people. Uh, honestly, fasting does not play a huge role at all in my life, prayer or otherwise. Um, there are times, very, very few of them in my nearly 30 years walking with the Lord, uh, where I've fasted for a purpose or for a very, very short time. But, you know, the the, the really spiritual types, oh, I fast for 30 days. I don't, I don't do any of that. Uh, fasting is, is a, just a, a message that we're sending to God. I'm going to deny my flesh. My flesh wants to eat or my flesh wants to do this. I'm not going to do that. There's lots of fasts. But um, um, the idea is, okay, Lord, I'm going to deny my flesh so I can hear from you. Um, as most of you have heard, Gail, my preference is to, to the hunger and thirst for Jesus every single day. And I don't really think there's a, a, a real value in fasting um, as as it's understood uh, in a Jewish construct in the old and the, the, the gospel times of our history. So I hope that makes sense to you. I'm just not a big faster. You can read Isaiah 58 because that is the definitive chapter on what fasting truly is. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in our program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'd love your calls. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our tuesday show 340-95 i'm sorry it's wednesday isn't it see i'm all mixed up we had a holiday on monday and i'm i'm confused Here is a question from our email inbox from Alex, and he says it's a follow-up question. Pastor Ron, you answered my question on Friday about how to get the youth excited about Christ. Your answer made sense, but my follow-up to that is, 
Why then do so many churches focus on the fun element rather than the word? Uh, Alex, I'm ashamed to answer this question, um, but the, the answer to the question is real simple. When kids come to church, guess who they bring with them? They bring adults. And adults sit in the main service. Adults put money in the offering box or plate whenever it's passed. And they want to fill their seats and they want to fill the offering boxes. The best way to do it is have kids that go to church because it's fun. Man, I want to have fun. The parents are relieved. Church, they think, is a safe place. And so they focus on the fun uh, because they want to entertain the kids. Again, entertained kids pressure their parents to come to church. The problem is when we're not focusing on the word, we're offering our kids nothing. Spiritual pablum is the, the, the phrase that I use a lot. Um, we'd rather entertain them so they're excited about being there than equip them to go out and be representatives of Jesus Christ in the world. And Alex, there is no other reason to do that. You know, it's a source of pride to say, well, I've got so many hundreds or so many thousands of, of kids in a, in a youth group. Uh, but the problem is you're, you're sacrificing them all at the altar of this world by focusing on fun. I think in the, the, the answer that I gave on, on uh, Friday, Alex, um, you know, we treat our children, not just youth, but our children, um, the way God would treat them. Jesus taught. The apostles sat and taught. And so we try to create a classroom-type environment where they're being taught. And with the kids and with the youth, there's a lots of give and take, answers and questions, or questions and answers. Uh, and, and we want to make it really practical in their day-to-day life. We want them to be equipped to deal with the world that we live in. And there's never been a time that is so important. You know, we all the time, Alex, get questions on this program. I get them in church about, we're losing a whole generation of kids. They go to college and their faith is stolen. Well, that's because all we've done in church is entertain them. And here at our church, it's the only one I can talk about with any authority. Here at our church, we have, um, from the very beginning, from toddlers, been teaching them the Bible at different levels, for sure, with people that are gifted to, to reach kids at different levels. But we teach the Bible. We don't teach stories. We, we, we Verse by verse, we teach them the Bible, and they get it. And these kids, here's the one thing I can tell you for sure, even the kids that fall away from the Lord, they are without excuse because they know their Bibles if they've come here. That's at church. At, at school, we have chapel that starts every day. And then we have a Bible class that's part of the curriculum. So they may choose to rebel, but they do it on their own. And um, I just wish that we would respect the kids enough to treat them as though they were smart enough to really understand and get it. Entertaining them doesn't matter. Uh, I'll also say one other thing about this, Alex. Uh, For the most part, there's always kids that are here because the parents make them be here and they don't want to be here. But but far, by far, for the most part, um, the kids here want to be here. 
you know, they're here for our services on Sunday, and then they come back at 2.30 for uh, youth Bible studies. Uh, on Monday nights, when we have the, the adult men's and women's studies, we have junior high school and high school studies where there's a lot of uh, give and take. So uh, we teach them the word, the word, the word. And the only reason other churches do not do that uh, is because they want their kids to um, want to come to church. And they drag parents along with them. This one comes from our mobile app from Chip. He says, what is the mystery of God referred to in Revelation chapter 10, verse 7? Let me read the verse and then I'll answer the question. It says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, this is the great tribulation, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servant, servants, the prophets. Um, obviously, we don't have all the mysteries, but just think about some of the mysteries that are going to finally find answers. Um, why does God allow evil? How long is he going to allow evil? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did God create the devil? Um, you know, all those crazy questions, those answers are already, I mean, the, the answers, we have them available in the Word, but those answers are going to be completely and fully answered. But we, we also know that mysteries, really important ones, are going to find their fulfillment. Paul had four mysteries, just, just Paul, that were revealed to him. Uh, he spoke about the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory. He spoke about the mystery of the church, Jew and Gentile becoming one body, no longer separated with hostility. Paul uh, had the mystery of the rapture of the church revealed to him in 1 Corinthians. All these will be finished, fulfilled, and when it says the mystery of God will be accomplished, it's just that God, from a human perspective, has been mysterious from the beginning. Think about Job. Job, more righteous than anyone on the earth at the time of his, uh, that, that he lived. And yet God allowed Satan to, to, to destroy him nearly. Gave Satan limits, of course. Why would God do that? So those are the mysteries that just begin to find their fulfillment. But on this day in the Great Tribulation, all of those mysteries are going to be sort of revealed to us once and for all. So, Chip, that's the mystery of God, but it's multiple. It's, it's um, not just one. It's the um, mysteries of God that we've been asking those questions about for a very, very long time. Thank you for that question. Jonathan wants to know, will I please discuss tongues and why people have such diverse ways of using them? Um, Jonathan, tongues are pretty easy if you just do what the Bible tells you to do. Um, um, the reason there are such diverse uh, views of how tongues are to be used is because uh, we have flesh. The church at Corinth, as an example, uh, was 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 dealing with uh, these issues. Everybody was speaking tongues at the same time. You can go to churches here, Jonathan. And you'll find people praying in tongues all at the same time. And it just sounds like craziness. And yet they're convinced in their mind because they want to be that that's somehow okay. Um, and the answer, Jonathan, is to, to why there are that many views is because there are that many people who completely disregard what the Bible says. 
Now, let me talk about tongues for a minute, not just the use of tongues. Tongues, of course, made their appearance um, in Christianity on the day the church was born. That was a sign. That's a sign that's never going to be repeated. So when we talk about the gift of tongues, Paul um, the, the de- goes into detail on in, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. Um, the, the tongues in the book of Acts and the tongues uh, as they apply today for the church are two completely different things. The tongues in Acts chapter 2 were a miraculous sign gift fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. We know that because Peter, when he began to speak, no, these men aren't drunk, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he talks about the the, the different tongues. But again, that was a one-time only event, just as the, the cloven tongues of fire and the sound of mighty rushing wind. It was just the Holy Spirit making his entrance to this world and empowering his church for the work that lay ahead. So those tongues were sign gifts. That gift, those gifts, are not for today any longer. The gift of tongues is different. Paul describes tongues as a vertical language. It's between man and God alone. Uh, tongues only becomes horizontal as man talking to other men when there's an interpretation and Paul says in the assembly, when the assemblies gather together, only two or three at the most should speak in tongues and always with an interpretation. So clearly, Jonathan, when you see in a church everybody speaking in tongues at once, um, that's a church that's out of control. And, and of course, self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. So um, th- those are churches that are unhealthy and imbalanced and uh, churches that we'd be wise to stay away from. You know, Jonathan, I don't know where you are in your walk with the Lord, how long you've been with the Lord, but this is one of the issues that, for me, um, really required a great deal of study uh, from the very beginning. Um, When I got saved, Paula would take me to churches, and we found Calvary Chapel, but uh, we were just crazy. I was so excited. I wanted to be in church all day. So we'd try to find uh, two or three churches that met on Sundays so we could go and sort of experience different things. And as you can imagine, in some of those churches, uh, tongues were being abused. And then in other churches, like when I went to Calvary Chapel, um, uh, they, they, they didn't leave place for tongues. And, and certainly when there was tongues, it was controlled by uh, the guidelines given to us in the New Testament. And and for me, that just didn't make sense. I didn't have any background to say, well, well you know, it doesn't make sense. Is it true or is it not true? Uh, Paula and I went to a church where they told her that if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't even saved. Now, I was pretty sure Paula was saved because she prayed for me for 13 years. But they made her afraid. It was It was uncomfortable. There was almost sales type pressure to get her to yabba dabba do. And, um, and, and, and she, we just, she just faked it so she could get out of there. Uh, and that really motivated me. It really motivated me to find out what it was. And I remember going to the, the uh, um, School of Theology library in our, in our community, and I dug out everything I could find on tongues. 
everything. I went all the way back to the Azusa Street Revival um, in the early 1900s, and I was just studying everything I could get my hands on. I read pro-crazy tongues, uh, anti-crazy tongues. Uh, I read uh, cessationists and charismatics, and I really had to dig in and find out. And for me, two things happened. One, I learned that the Bible makes sense. There doesn't have to be that kind of of diversity of views. But the second thing I learned is that God really rewards people who want to know what's true. So, Jonathan, that's what I would ask you to do. Just dig in. Don't take my word for it. Don't take, uh, certainly don't take the, the, the overly charismatic church's word for it. Um, just dig in and find out. Start in the Bible. I remember having a Bible my first Bible was the King James Bible, and I didn't realize it was the Kenneth Hagin Study Bible. And in the back, there was one of the, the little appendixes they had, and one of the, the, the lessons was 23 reasons why every Christian should speak in tongues. And, and so I went through that. I just went through everything. And then when you compare it with what the Word says, you're going to come up with a really balanced view of the gift of tongues. One final thing, Jonathan, it is a wonderful gift. I'm probably using it now more than I have in years, uh, but I never stopped using it. Um, you just, as the Spirit leads, you want to pray. You want to pray. You feel led to pray in your in your in your spirit tongue, um, and um, um, it's a great gift. Every gift God gives is a great one, though tongues is the least of the gifts because it's just for the edification of the believer alone. Um, to ignore it or to avoid it because it's weird or doesn't make sense to you is to get ripped off. So, Jonathan, I hope that makes sense to you. It is um, a subject near and dear to my heart because of the way Paula was uh, uh, frightened when when I first got saved. And and also just because it, it demonstrates um, asking questions like that, you're curious, and curiosity is a good thing. Barbara asks, do you think intercessory prayer plays any role at all in bringing someone to salvation? Barbara, of course it does. Now, the problem with us understanding what role it plays is it makes no sense to us. If God knows who's going to be saved, then... then um, uh, why should we intercede for people or even pray for people to get saved if God knows they are or they aren't? Now, here's the mystery of prayer. And this is one of the other mysteries that is going to be revealed during the Great Tribulation uh, when the seventh seal or the seventh trumpet judgment uh, is is unleashed. Um, um, what role does prayer play in anything? Clearly, God puts it on our hearts at times to pray for people. Uh, I am praying now, and when I say daily, I'm sure I miss some days, but not very many. Uh, I'm praying daily now for our president and vice president and their families to get saved. Um, certainly praying for my unsaved children and grandchildren. Um, as as you may know, Barbara, listening to the program that Paula prayed for me for 13 years, and finally I got saved. We don't know, unless it's just that God wants us to partner with Him 
in his will. But here's the one thing that we can know for sure. If we're praying for somebody to get saved, we're praying in the perfect will of God. I have a man that I'm praying for right now who is gravely ill. Um, His wife is a beautiful, lovely believer, a godly, godly woman. Um, And, you know, she's asking for prayer. I'm praying for his physical condition. But honestly, Barbara, I'm praying far, far, far more that he gets saved. She's a believer. He's not. I want them to be together forever in heaven. And that to me is infinitely more important than whether or not he gets healed. Now again, I'm still praying as asked for his healing. But some of us only get healed in heaven. And I want this man to be in heaven. I want him to be in heaven in the worst way. And so that is is really the focus of my prayers. And God has put him in a very special place, a deep place in my heart. And so I can't stop praying. God put it in the heart of Moses to intercede for the people of Israel. Even after God said, Moses, they're your people. You, I, I'm, I'm going to leave. And, and, and Moses said, no, you can't do that. I don't want to go without you. So he interceded for them. And, and I think the reason is because that's what Jesus does for us and we're to be like Jesus. So I think, Barbara, praying for people to get saved is one of the most important things we do and it's something we should never stop doing. You know, when you've got family members especially or dear friends and they're not saved, it's not one of those flare prayers, you know, that you throw up, okay, God save them and then you don't pray anymore. Yeah, I pray for your salvation. I mean, these are things that we need to pray for daily. Like the, the persistent widow in praying. We need to be persistent praying and never giving up. And God answers some of those prayers. I also, Barbara, take it personally. When God puts somebody on my heart to pray, I'll say, uh, when I'm out walking with the Lord or out doing my running or whatever it is, I say, well, gee, Lord, I, you know, I haven't thought about this person in a long time. Uh, and, and you just put them on my heart. And so I'll take that as God saying, okay, Ron, I want you to pray for this person. And I think that's really important. Thank you very much, Barbara. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Here is a question from Walter. He said, "What is the sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit?" Now, I'm going to presume, Walter, that you're asking this because somebody has told you that speaking in tongues is the sign of being baptized in or filled with the Holy Spirit. That might be one sign, but there is only one sign that is absolutely essential in demonstrating whether we're baptized in the Spirit, and that's love. Without love, we're just making noise. And we live in a time when people think, oh, I speak in tongues, and or I can do this, or I can do that. I think, I think we do that without love. That's not the power of the Holy Spirit at all. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to be evident through our love. This is how they'll know you belong to me, Jesus said, by your love they will know you. And that's what makes it so important. We focus on tongues, all the carnal stuff. We're like, many of us, Walter, are like the church in Corinth. 
We focus on all the wrong things. Jesus, when he was um, um, hammering the Pharisees, and I mean that in a godly way, of course, um, he said, you know, you, you, you're, you're majoring on the minors. You know, you strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. You, you divide your spices, your mint and your cumin, and, and you do it so precisely, you know, one for God, ten for me, one for God, ten for me. Um, Jesus said that's the wrong thing. The, the, the law is summed up in loving your neighbor. Loving God with all of your heart, the second one is like unto it, loving your neighbor before yourself. And there's nobody who's filled in the Holy Spirit, filled with, or the Spirit has come upon, who is operating in the power of God's Spirit if they're not motivated by love. It's also, Walter, a good way to identify false teachers. You know, a lot of times... False teachers say mostly true things. When Satan tried to use the word of God against Jesus, Jesus straightened him out, but he didn't stop didn't stop him from trying. A lot of times false teachers will say 80, 90 percent of stuff that's true. But you can listen to them and there's absolutely no love in the message. There's no heart of compassion. So love is the definitive sign of having been baptized in the Holy Spirit or currently being in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Walter, for that question. We're inside of three minutes. Okay. Uh, Here's another tongues question from Raymond. A friend of mine says he has no interest in speaking in tongues. Should I encourage them to try? Yeah, Raymond, you should. Um, I just think... Um, the the argument I made uh, in answering a question a few minutes ago, why would we not want every gift that, that God gives? Does God give any bad gifts or any inferior gifts? Now, here's one of the problems. Because of the abuses, Raymond, that I talked about uh, earlier in the show uh, of the gift of tongues, there's a lot of people who have just decided, oh, that's just weird, I don't want it. And they've just completely sort of disassociated themselves from it because, one, it doesn't make sense, um, uh, two, they're out of control. Um, but but that's a Christian who isn't saying, okay, God, what about me? What gifts do you want? And I can't imagine Jesus saying, I've got a gift for you. Do you want it? I can't imagine saying no. Paul said, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. Paul said we should all desire the gift. I personally believe, Raymond, though not everyone is going to receive the gift of tongues. That's clear. I personally believe that everybody can receive the gift of tongues if they just sort of receive them by faith and sort of take a step into the unknown or take a step into the weird. If they do that, then the proper use of tongues is a wonderful gift, as I said repeatedly earlier. It is a wonderful gift and something that we really need to focus on. Thank you, Raymond. Final question of the day. Lisa says, what does it mean to be a progressive Christian? Is it consistent with the Bible? Lisa, to be a progressive Christian is just the opposite of consistency uh, with the Word of God. Uh, In in our culture, progressive Christian is one who would accept homosexuality, uh, gay marriage, uh, transgenderism, um, and and any of the other things 
um, somebody that would be focused on social justice issues rather than being focused on Jesus Christ. Not only is it not consistent with the Word of God, um, most of the time, um, those who identify themselves as progressive Christians aren't really Christians at all. You know, just saying Jesus doesn't make you saved. Obeying Jesus demonstrates that you love him. So, um, progressive Christianity is most often not Christianity at all, and it's really sort of taken over in many of our old-time mainline denominations. Tonight at 7 o'clock, Genesis chapter 32, my, one of my favorite chapters. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. Tomorrow, Paul will be live in studio with me. We'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.